The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Power of Interprofessional Teams in SSC ILD from Diagnosis through Management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TDE860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Can you answer the questions correctly? Find out in this activity that is customized to you. Test your current knowledge with the series of questions related to the topic and rate your confidence for each answer. If you answered correctly and were confident, you will move on to the next question. If you need a little more information about the topic, an expert will provide evidence that supports the most appropriate answer choice. Then you will have the opportunity to try again with a similar scenario. When you have finished all of the questions, a summary page with your results will be provided, along with links to all of the expert presentations for your reference. Earn credit by answering the review questions at the end. Let's get started with your first question. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our presentation today. I'm Lisa Lancaster. I'm director of the Interstitial Lung Disease Program at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. And I am honored and excited to be talking to you about the power of interprofessional teams in systemic sclerosis, ILD. We're going to start talking about diagnosis, continue on through management. And I hope you pick up some important pearls along the way that you can take back to your practice. Let's begin by discussing the diagnosis. How do we best assess patients for ILD with systemic sclerosis? Well, the symptoms of interstitial lung disease in systemic sclerosis can really be somewhat nonspecific. And our patients can certainly uh, have multiple causes for these symptoms, but we wanna keep the possibility of interstitial lung disease in the back of our minds. And those symptoms include dyspnea exertion, cough, and fatigue. Also be aware that there's a preclinical phase to this, and some patients are asymptomatic early on in disease. We wanna make sure we do a very good history and physical on these patients. We wanna understand their symptoms, deep dive into any cough that could occur just incidentally after meals or, or even at bedtime or during sleep. We wanna make sure we earn, understand the chronology of their symptoms and ask them about any comorbidities like reflux or possible snoring or disrupted sleep? What's their breathing like, not just during the day, but also during sleep? We want to assess the physiology in these patients. And we do that with pulmonary function testing that helps us understand is there restrictive or obstructive disease. And we'd see restrictive disease and in interstitial lung disease. Um, and also a six-minute wild test. It's kind of our pulmonary stress test and another, another vital sign for us. It's an measure of um, how they fatigue with walking, an idea of what their daily lives would be like uh, just moving around their home, but also, and I think more importantly, a measure of their oxygenation. This is kind of our pulmonary stress test. How is their oxygenation doing with walking or exertion as well as at rest? And we want to make sure in our patients with scleroderma, especially those with Raynaud's, that we think about not just measuring their finger oximetry, but also their head sat. Because if they have Raynaud's that's active, we may not pick up an accurate saturation on their finger. 
So it's important to know that there's a significant amount of heterogeneity in regards to the incidence and prevalence of pulmonary involvement in patients with systemic sclerosis. But there are factors that help us assess the risk of developing interstitial lung disease. In patients with diffuse systemic sclerosis or SCL70 antibodies may be at higher risk for developing interstitial lung disease. But also remember that that doesn't mean that our patients with limited disease aren't at risk as well. They're still at risk, so they need to be monitored. Let's look at what HRCTs uh, look like in our patients with systemic sclerosis. And I, I think it's important at this point to point out uh, the utility of the high-resolution CT and what elements to look at on those. We certainly want very good inspiratory images with a good full deep inspiration. And you can look at the trachea and make sure it's a full circle for that. During expiration, the posterior trachea flattens out. Expiratory images in our high resolution chest CT help us look for air trapping. Air trapping in three or more lobes may suggest um, small airways disease that we could potentially see in patients with autoimmune disease. We also want to have prone images and those prone images help inflate the posterior part of the lung and get rid of atelectasis or shift fluid so we don't confuse fluid or atelectasis with interstitial lung disease. These particular images are during uh, inspiration and show some key features that we may see in our patients with interstitial lung disease in systemic sclerosis. And the picture on the left uh, it has an arrow pointing to ground glass opacities and also dilated airways of traction bronchiectasis pulled open uh, by the uh, contracting fibrosis that are next to those. And this is suggestive of a nonspecific interstitial pneumonitis pattern in systemic sclerosis. The image on the right shows a more fibrotic phenotype with small circular cyst of honeycombing, some dilated airways of bronchiectasis, uh, and also a more uh, peripheral uh, distribution in this. And this may be more suggestive of a usual interstitial pneumonitis phenotype or injury pattern that we can see on the high resolution CT and systemic sclerosis. I also wanna point you to the mediastinum. So look at the large airways, we're right at the carina in these images. And just posterior to that is the esophagus, which is usually a pinhole on images, but this one's dilated with a width that's about the width of uh, the uh, main stem bronchi. So that's much bigger than we'd expect. And when we see this dilated, more patchless esophagus, that may suggest dysmotility in our patients. We also may see somewhat of a straight line going across. And, and in general, there, um, as they say, there are no straight lines in nature. And if you see a, a straight, straight line with opacities uh, in the esophagus, that may suggest food or fluid there with an air fluid level. Uh, again, denoting the possibility of esophageal dysmotility. So how does extent of disease impact survival. Well, I think this graph really highlights that very well with patients with more extensive disease having a worse survival. How do we define extensive disease? 
Well, arbitrarily, we've used these cutoffs uh, to define extensive or limited disease. So limited disease being less than 20% of the CT being involved by interstitial lung disease and a forced vital capacity of greater than or equal to 70%. For more extensive disease, it's involvement on the HRCT of greater than 20% and a forced vital capacity of less than 70%. Forced vital capacity can also be linked with survival. And you'll note here that the worse the forced vital capacity and, and that, that measure uh, of uh, on spirometry when we take a deep breath and blow essentially everything out that we can. When as that restriction worsens and as that reduces, then we're going to see, uh, we do see worse survival. So how do we go about evaluating interstitial lung disease or looking for it in our patients diagnosed with systemic sclerosis? Well, we start again with that good history and physical we get measures of physiology and that's our pulmonary function testing. And I'd throw in our walk testing here too, as well as a measure of oxygenation. If we see abnormalities here or concerned about uh, uh, history or exam findings, we'll move on and get a high resolution CT. And that's really our gold standard for evaluating interstitial lung disease. The spiral or standard chest CTs, the resolution is just not as good and you don't get those expiratory images or prone images that we need as well to uh, really understand the injury pattern that we're looking at on a CT scan. If no interstitial lung disease is present, uh, Think about evaluate, and they've got symptoms, think about evaluating for pulmonary hypertension, but also continue to measure physiology with pulmonary function testing um, two times to three to four times a year. And then if they've been uh, absent for a while after three to five years, think about just annually assessing for the presence of interstitial lung disease if, if no symptomatology is present. If symptomatology occurs during that time with more shortness of breath, dyspnea, or cough, then obviously evaluate sooner. Um, for patients with extensive disease, we're gonna want to go ahead and treat those patients. Those with more limited disease that are not progressing, we may choose to follow them. If they've got significant risk factors for progression or we identify progression, then we're gonna wanna treat those patients. So what features identify patients at risk for progression? Well, I think this chart delineates that very well and divides that up into categories. And our demographic characteristics include male sex, African-American race, and more advanced age. Diffuse disease is more likely or higher risk to develop interstitial lung disease in patients with higher skin scores or higher modified rodent skin scores at the time of their ILD diagnosis. And interestingly enough, patients that are shorter from the time of their diagnosis of their disease, so shorter disease duration, may be more likely to progress. More severe disease with moderate to severe restriction declines in FEC, DLCO are also risk, uh, increased extent of reticulations, and serologic profiles with an SCL70 antibody positivity also denote increased risk for disease progression. Biomarker levels have been correlated with this, and in clinical practice, we can measure CRPs. And in contrast, uh, factors that are less likely to denote uh, disease progression include essentially the opposite, limited skin disease, 
uh, less skin involvement with lower uh, MRSS skin scores at presentation and a longer period of disease dur great, uh, duration of uh, four to five years from the point of diagnosis. Uh, stable pulmonary function testing, higher FEC DLCOs, and minimal reticulations to no reticulations uh, denote a lower likelihood of disease progressions. And then the serologic profiles of the centromere antibody and the RNA polymerase 3 fall into this category as well. So when we diagnose our patients with systemic sclerosis, we want to evaluate them for interstitial lung disease. And once we find the interstitial lung disease, we need to think about a therapy based on extent of disease and all that we've just reviewed over. But what therapies do we think about? Well, the CT scan can be good guidance on that. Are we seeing more a fibrotic phenotype um, or are we seeing more inflammatory ground glass-like phenotype on the high-risk CT? Do we have other features systemically in their disease that may uh, point us in the direction of immune suppression starting out of the gate? And that's usually uh, the uh, presentation that we see in patients. And many patients are put on mycophenolate mofetil to begin with uh, because of this. We follow patients with pulmonary function testing then every uh, three months uh, to six months. Generally at our program, we'll do every uh, three to four months with uh, a six minute walk test to look for physiologic evidence of disease progression. If we see that, we may think about repeating a C high resolution CT scan as well. If we find disease progression in their interstitial lung disease, despite the immune suppression, then we'll think about adding antifibrotics on board, or we've got some other choices as denoted here. Uh, again, we'll follow patients once we've uh, got two therapies going every three to six months, generally every three to four months, because we're also following patients for safety labs while they're on uh, their immune suppressing medicine. If they're still progressing despite that, then we may think about rescue therapy with rituximab. Other options include clinical trials, uh, lung transplantation where appropriate, and we'll discuss those uh, special cases, and also in more advanced disease uh, palliative care and hospice. We don't wanna forget about the role that reflux may be playing um, in uh, uh, advancing uh, lung disease with recurrent aspiration pneumonias. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Let's start out by reviewing the data uh, of treatments for patients with systemic sclerosis who have interstitial lung disease. And one of the first ones that was examined in um, a good placebo-controlled clinical trial was with uh, cyclophosphamide. And uh, patients were placed on cyclophosphamide versus placebo and followed over a period of 24 months. They saw a separation of curves that were significant, that was significant at about 18 months, but then the curves came together. I, I want you to notice the y-axis, which is adjusted predicted FVC. And notice there's really not a, a lot of difference, although significant at 18 months. Uh, between the two curves at that point uh, where the placebo group um, uh, adjusted predicted FEC is around 66% and about 69% or so in the treated group. 
Mycophenolate mofetil was then looked at and compared to uh, cyclophosphamide, and it performed about the same, but we had a little bit better survival and, and, and better profile for adverse events in um, patients on mycophenolate mofetil versus cyclophosphamide. As of 2019, nintetinib therapy has been approved for the treatment of systemic sclerosis related ILD. What exactly does nintetinib do and how does it work? Well, it's a triple kinase inhibitor blocking pathways of VEGF, PDGF, and fibroblastic growth factor. And as a result, it hampers leukocyte recruitment, uh, uh, the fibroblast becoming an activated fibroblast and subsequently a myofibroblast and diminishing deposition of extracellular matrix and collagen that are important in that uh, scar formation. Let's look at the data from the census trial that ultimately led to FDA approval for the treatment of systemic sclerosis ILD in September of 2019. Nintetinib was compared to placebo in patients with SSC ILD, and the adjusted annual rate of decline in FEC in mils per year was much less in the Nintetinib group group than the placebo group with a relative reduction of 44%. And if you look at the mean absolute change from baseline enforced vital capacity, that was much less in the integral group and significantly different than the placebo group as well. The placebo group uh, over the course of the year declined by about 93 mils versus about 52 mils in the treated group with intetinib. So since then, patients uh, in that study were continued on and followed to answer the question, does nintetinib continue to slow progression of SSCILD beyond 52 weeks? And um, the study over a course of 100 weeks did show that the nintetinib group had less of a decline in forced vital capacity than the placebo group. So less of a relative decline of forced vital capacity of greater than 5% during that 100 weeks and greater than 10% during that 100 weeks than the placebo group. There was an interesting subgroup analysis um, that found that nintetinib reduced the progression of interstitial lung disease in patients with systemic sclerosis who were both using mycophenolate mofetil at baseline and those who were not using mycophenolate mofetil at baseline. So there's no heterogeneity and it's a treatment effect between these two two subgroups on this immune suppression therapy. So let's look at the subgroup of patients with reflux. How did they fare with nintetinib treatment? Well, interestingly enough, the, the treatment group that had reflux did very well. There was concern that maybe reflux on top of this may actually end up hampering the effects of nintetinib, but that was the case was actually just the opposite with a relative difference between the treatment groups and forced vital capacity uh, uh, decline of 49% in those who had reflux versus 24.8% in those who didn't have reflux with an antenna group faring significantly better than those who were on placebo. Let's look at the data for tocilizumab. 
So tocilizumab is an antibody that binds to IL-6 and ultimately blots its effects downstream. Adverse events with this medication mostly include infectious risk and complications. This uh, particular drug was studied in patients with diffuse systemic sclerosis. The primary endpoint of the study was uh, uh, measures of skin fibrosis, and it didn't meet the primary endpoint. But there was a subgroup of patients uh, with SSCILD that were treated with tocilizumab who had a smaller decline in forced vital capacity by percent predicted and by absolute mills than the placebo treated group. And um, that was independent of the extent of radiographically evident quantitative ILD in patients with early systemic sclerosis related ILD. This study is called a focused study. And if we look at that graphically and look at the change from baseline in percent predicted FEC for all patients and for those with systemic sclerosis related ILD, we'll see a separation of the curves and that patients, all patients and patients uh, uh, that patients with systemic sclerosis related ILD uh, fared better on tocilizumab than uh, the placebo group. So that ultimately resulted in FDA approval uh, showing that tocilizumab slowed the rate of decline by forced vital capacity and pulmonary function for systemic sclerosis related ILD. An ongoing trial is uh, looking at uh, profenadone layered on top of mycophenolate mofetil versus placebo. So we're gonna be really excited about this uh, scleroderma uh, study results as those come back and see if profenadone uh, provides uh, a, a significant amount of stabilization and pulmonary function as nintetinib did. It really takes a village to manage patients with ILD and especially with systemic sclerosis. We've talked about the important roles of the pulmonologist and the rheumatologist in managing these patients. But the management goes far beyond uh, just those two. And that includes nurses, uh, physician's assistants, doctors of pharmacy, uh, gastroenterologists, as well. We want to make sure that patients are involved with physical therapists, um, pulmonary rehab specialists, so that we can correct elements of, dis, uh, of deconditioning in pulmonary rehab. We want to make sure patients have their vaccinations up to date, especially when they're on immune suppressive therapy. And we want to make sure we get them involved in support groups and take care of any mood disorders that may occur. Let's look at two key comorbidities next in systemic sclerosis and how those may uh, relate to interstitial lung disease in these patients. Well, GI tract involvement in systemic sclerosis has a prevalence of about 54 to 90% uh, in these patients. And the most frequent complication involves the esophagus with reflux and dysmotility. Uh, in 30 to 96% of the cases, depending on the study and the group that's uh, being studied. GERD occurs in both diffuse 
systemic sclerosis and in limited systemic sclerosis. And it may contribute to small airways disease as a result of micro and macro aspiration, damaging small airways and even increasing our risk of interstitial disease. Obstructive sleep apnea is essentially just a floppy airway from the back of the throat to the upper trachea. When we have more uh, uh, muscular uh, soft tissue at risk without uh, the stability of uh, the tracheal rings. So we can have um, partial occlusion of the airway or complete occlusion just for seconds at a time, multiple times during the night. And that can result in desaturation events during the night. Now oxygen level comes right back up, but these dips in oxygenation are really the pathologic drive for um, release of uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine that can worsen uh, blood pressure, hypertension, heart disease, and arrhythmias uh, over the whole 24-hour period. Upper airway occlusion, when it occurs, we are still trying to breathe against a closed upper airway. So that can create very wide swings in pleural pressure with a negative pressure in our chest. And when patients are in the supine position, that can augment reflux when pressures in the uh, below the diaphragm are positive, pressures above the diaphragm are very negative and worsen uh, reflux juices to be sucked up into the chest and um, possibly spill into the lung, contributing to uh, reflux aspiration and, and uh, inflammation and fibrosis that can result in small airways disease and interstitial lung disease. Obstructive sleep apnea has been reported in up to 68% of patients with interstitial lung disease, and if left untreated, again, can aggravate symptoms of reflux. So there are two types of esophageal involvement that are important to remember, not just the heartburn, the reflux, the sour taste in the mouth, but remember the component of esophageal dysmotility. Uh, we can see dysmotility all the way down the uh, GI tract. And in the esophagus, that can manifest as dysphagia and chest pain. The overall incidence of esophageal symptoms in systemic sclerosis has been estimated between 40 and 80%. But remember, some patients can be totally asymptomatic and still have reflux and dysmotility. So how do we think about evaluating patients for systemic sclerosis, with systemic sclerosis for uh, esophageal reflux? Well, that can um, be evaluated with the help of our gastroenterologists, especially those um, that can do special procedures uh, such as pH probe monitoring and manometry that can evaluate for uh, reflux and for dysmotility. Speech Therapists can also be very helpful to us evaluating swallowing. So pharyngeal weakness, possibly related to uh, myositis uh, in the uh, upper throat. And also through video fluoroscopy swallow studies, um, be able to visualize esophagus and even identify some esophageal dysmotility with those studies. For patients that can't have testing done that may be too hypoxic, too sick to have that done. There are questionnaires, um, one in particular called GERD-Q, and a score of greater than or equal to four indicates a sensitivity of 96.9% and a specificity of 50%. If the score is greater than or equal to eight, 
then that sensitivity goes down to 65%, but the specificity increases to 100%. Ganesh Raghu, um, back in 2006, published a paper where he looked at reflux in patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and found that 90% of those patients had reflux by pH probe monitoring. And 12 of 19 of those patients with IPF who were receiving proton pump inhibitors during that 24-hour pH probe had still had abnormal acid exposure. So that suggested that we may not be treating adequately the acid reflux with just standard doses of proton pump inhibitors. We also have um, further data in um, other studies that a proton pump inhibitor refractoriness may occur in systemic sclerosis-related ILD due to the dysphagia. So thus, screening for dysmotility is as important as screening for uh, gastroesophageal reflux. We need further studies regarding how reflux may impact survival in systemic sclerosis, but there have been starts in other fibrotic-related ILDs in IPF, for example. Joyce Lee and colleagues looked at survival in patients who were treated with um, acid blockade and found improved survival in those patients in this retrospective trial. So we want to be cognizant of the possibility of reflux and dysmotility in our patients uh, with systemic sclerosis and especially systemic sclerosis related ILD. We certainly wanna take any kerosene off the fire and keep things out of the lung that shouldn't be there, especially uh, reflux that may add to uh, pneumonia, inflammation and fibrosis in our small airways and in our interstitium of these patients. We want to evaluate them and have a low threshold for pH probe and manometry and get the help of our gastroenterologist in evaluating these patients. We want to think about placing them on proton pump inhibitors and pay close attention to dosing as standard dosing uh, may not be adequate and sufficient for these patients. We want to consider the possibility of surgical interventions, but for most patients with dysmotility, that's not an option. And that's really where our gastroenterology colleagues can help us out to see if there are any further therapies that might be of benefit to patients. Supportive measures, uh, including small meals, chewing food well, avoiding big bites, uh, using water to complement solid foods to aid in swallowing may be helpful. Uh, stopping smoking can be helpful, not just to lung disease, but also to diminish reflux as well. And we definitely want to encourage patients to elevate the head of bed or perhaps even sleep on a wedge or get a bed that perhaps uh, elevates their head um, to help uh, with diminishing the amount of reflux that occurs at nighttime, especially in those patients who have dysmotility as well. So let's look at sleep apnea as well. And when we're assessing for sleep apnea, we're looking for abnormal breathing at night. Um, what is sleep apnea? Well, essentially it's a floppy airway from the back of the throat to the upper trachea. And as you sleep and get in deeper, deeper stages of sleep, that airway relaxes further. 90% of the obstruction for most patients with obstructive sleep apnea occurs at the base of the tongue. Many of the symptoms of uh, sleep apnea may be overt and, and common and easily recognized like witness apneas and snoring, 
uh, to gasping or choking at night, morning headaches, or excessive daytime sleepiness. But many of our patients may not have those symptoms. They may just have fragmented sleep, get up and make multiple bathroom trips at night, not feel refreshed in the morning, or have uh, changes in their mood or libido, uh, or cognitive dysfunction that may be a warning sign for sleep disorder, breathing, or sleep apnea. We also question of those patients who got started on CPAP and who were compliant with it, how did they fare over time? What, what did their survival look like? And the compliant definition we used was that of the Medicare compliant use of 70% or more um, over the course of a month. So those who were compliant, interestingly enough, had a better survival than those who were non-compliant. And we saw the first deaths in the compliant group uh, not until five years out. So I encourage you, as you think about your patients with systemic sclerosis and those with interstitial lung disease related to systemic sclerosis, look for comorbidities and manage those as well, because reflux can aggravate uh, interstitial lung disease and pulmonary function, and sleep apnea may end up aggravating oxygenation, may be pro-inflammatory as a result, and aggravate reflux, which may be kerosene on the fire uh, for the lung disease in these patients. Try to identify this early, treat aggressively, and um, manage the whole patient, not just their ILD, but also their comorbidities as well. I'd like to thank everybody for their time and participation in this educational event. And I hope in the end, you were able to take home some pearls and uh, some new knowledge back to your practice to care for your patients with systemic sclerosis. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TDE 860. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Behringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.